Hi, I'm Scott McDonald. You might remember me as Tosk on Deep Space Nine, Subcommander Nebec on Star Trek The Next Generation, plus some other Star Trek episodes that you can look up online before you come back and watch us and listen to us on Trek Untold. Welcome to Trek Untold, the Star Trek podcast that goes beyond the stars. I'm your host, Matthew Kaplowitz. This week on the show, I'm sitting down with veteran actor Scott McDonald to talk all about his extremely memorable Star Trek appearances, as well as more from his life and career. And boy, has Scott had an amazing career on stage and screen. Scott appeared as five characters during his time in Star Trek. First as Tosk in the first season episode from Deep Space Nine, and as I learned during this interview, that was the very first television role that Scott ever had. He followed that up with a Romulan named Novek from the sixth season TNG episode, Face of the Enemy. From there, he also appeared on the pilot episode of Voyager, before returning to Deep Space Nine once again in the fourth season episode, Hippocratic Oath, as a Jem'Hadar named Garanagar. In between that, he also did some work as a Klingon in one of the Star Trek video games. And finally, Scott played the part of Commander Dolem for eight episodes in Season 3 of Enterprise. Essentially being the main antagonist to Archer during that season, and being a thorn in the side of everyone, Cindy and Human alike. Beyond his work in Star Trek, Scott has done a ton of things in the theater, as well as in television and film. As I learned during our conversation, Scott is extremely eloquent and passionate about performing, and this is one of those episodes where I'm going to use that magic phrase I love to say, this one here is a masterclass. This interview was so epic that I had to split it in two, because even our discussion of how he became Tosk was just that informative. Scott is a very special actor and one that loves to really talk shop and get super granular. So for this week, our focus is going to be Scott's origin story in performing and the first half of his roles in Star Trek. Once you get hooked on hearing how awesome those tales are, you're definitely not going to want to miss part two next week. But as LeVar Burton always says, you don't have to take my word for it. So, let's start chatting with that man behind the makeup, Scott McDonald. But before we begin this week's episode, I want to remind you to follow Trek Untold on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Trek Untold, all one word. You can get show updates, check out some fun memes, and let me know what you think about what's going on with the current events in the Star Trek universe. You can also support this show directly on Patreon at patreon.com slash trekuntold, where you can support this show for as little as $2 a month. At higher tiers, you can listen to the shows before they come out, know about my guests well in advance, and even have a chance to ask them questions, get transcripts of these episodes to make sure you get all the info, and more benefits coming soon, including watch parties and live streams. But that's all dependent on more fans like you coming over and letting me know you want to be a part of events like that. If you want some Trek Untold merchandise, check out our store for gear and apparel, including shirts, hats, stickers, water bottles, notebooks, and a whole lot more. New designs will be added throughout the year, so it's always worth taking a peek. Trek Untold also has an Amazon shop where you can peruse everything Star Trek, sci-fi, and geeky on Amazon in one convenient location. If you're looking for a gift for the Trekkie in your life, or maybe want to see some of my favorite non-Star Trek things that you can get for yourself, 
Check out the link for my Amazon shop in the show notes on the audio version and in the description below this video on YouTube. If you're listening to us on iTunes or any other audio platforms that allow for ratings and reviews, please leave us a five-star rating and a positive review to help out this show. If you're watching it on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe to us at youtube.com at Trek Untold and give the video a thumbs up and a comment. All of these things help more people find this show and to continue growing and bringing you awesome guests each and every week. Now, without further ado, let's beam in this week's guest. Computer, access interview file. And welcome back to Trek Untold. Now, joining me on the other side of the screen, he's wearing a DS9 hat, so you know he's awesome. We're talking today to Scott McDonald. Scott, how's it going? I'm very good, thank you. I'm loving that hat, by the way. Uh, I hope there's a story attached to it. I guess we'll get into that as we start talking. But, uh, Scott, I would love to ask you the first question I ask all my guests on this podcast, and that is, what's your earliest memory of Star Trek? Were you a fan of the series growing up? Yeah, uh, my my first memory of Star Trek, my dad was excited about it. They'd been advertising it, TV guides, stuff like that, calling it a, a wagon train in space, uh, things like that in the ads. And uh, I was in grade school. And I got to stay up late and watch with my dad uh, the first episode that ever aired in the U.S., which was the Salt Sucker episode, the, that McCoy in love with the Salt Sucker doctor. And uh, uh, it, it, that was actually a little scarier than my mom wanted because that creature was s- spooky. Uh, and uh, But I got to watch the very first airing of the very first episode of Star Trek when I was a boy. And it was a little bit of an event because I got to stay up late and sit with my dad and watch TV. Wow. Yeah. Cause yeah, that was basically the first series proper episode with Captain Kirk at the helm. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's a pretty good episode too to start. Like that's the very first one. Uh, now did you watch yeah, it? On yeah, well, TV, it, it wasn't the first one. It wasn't the first one they filmed, but it was the first yeah. one that ended up airing. Yeah. Did you see that in color or was that in black and white when you watched it? My guess is black and white. Okay. On our big, we had a big black and white box TV in the back. And I can't remember when they got, a, they got a little, yeah, my guess is black and white. Okay. That's cool. I mean, that's, that's like going way back. So you were a Trekkie from the very beginning. I'm, I'm not going to put words in your mouth to say you were a Trekkie, but you were watching from the very start. So that's cool. Yeah, I, wa- I watched it. I don't think I got to watch a lot after that uh, when it was on just, you know, cause Staying up late, grade school kid, mom making you go to bed, all that stuff. There was also in some TV thing in the Sunday paper, there was a kind of a full page color poster of uh, Kirk and Spock. And uh, my dad cut that out and they built this full wall to give my older brother his own room in this separate section of the house. And uh, on that wall, dad used to put posters and stuff like that he had sammy davis jr and frank sinatra and people like that up there and he put that star trek up there so it was in our tv room uh on the wall growing up too so it was there was an influence there uh early on yeah that is very cool so star trek is always pervasive in some way and uh, let's actually spend a little more time talking about young scott mcdonald here so can you tell me where you were born who your parents were and what they did and what little Scott wanted to be when he grew up? 
I was born in Spokane and uh, we moved around a bit because my dad was a uh, radio man. He was in, he was a DJ and uh, program director and uh, he had some pretty high profile uh, positions as program director. He was at Cairo in Seattle, which was a big station at the time. And then he, we moved down to the Bay Area, KNBR in San Francisco. Uh, mom was a housewife and a mom. Uh, I had a couple brothers growing up. And uh, so she was busy with us three. And uh, um, then my mom and dad split and uh, we moved to Montana where my mom was from. So I sort of spent seventh grade to graduating high school. And subsequently, since then, I go back a lot uh, up in Montana. So I grew up in Northwestern Montana, technically, you know, uh, played high school sports and did some high school plays and, uh, was editor of the school paper and things like that in my high school, uh, in Libby, Montana. It was a good upbringing, very eclectic. Uh, I had good, I was lucky. I got really good teachers when I was a kid. I looked back on it and realized that it was a really, uh, well-rounded education. Now, did you know what you wanted to be when you grew up, or were you kind of trying to figure that out as you were going along? Well, I I went to Washington State University when I graduated high school because I thought I was going to be a DJ. I kind of wanted to uh, okay. uh, be a DJ. Um, the footsteps of your dad a little bit? And, yeah, I guess so, yeah. And the, um, the Edward R. Murrow School of Journalism is at Washington State University. A lot of famous broadcasters came out of there. Keith Jackson, of course, Edward R. Murrow. I got in there and I started on that degree and there were a lot of speech classes that I took. Uh, and in one, and I took an acting class, a beginning acting class. Uh, basically my older brother just said, you should take this class cause it's an easy A. And uh, I did take it and I performed in this kind of one act play at the end, which was kind of like the final exam. And the head of the department pulled me aside and said, not for nothing, not telling you to pursue this or anything, but just telling you that you're really good at this and uh, you should think about doing more plays because you're, 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 you have a natural instinct. You're good at this. And, uh, you know, when you're that age, I was 18. And when somebody tells you you're good at something, it makes your eyes wide open, especially, you know, the head of a department at a university. So uh, I started to uh, take theater classes. And I did a lot of plays at, while I was at Washington State and wound up graduating from there with uh, a degree in broadcasting and a degree in speech theater. Hmm. So I had two BAs from Washington State University. And that was that was where I got the theater bug, uh, was there doing those shows and being in those plays. And uh, then I uh, went to... So I kind of shifted. I, I I, I wasn't positive that I thought I was going to be an actor. I knew I enjoyed it a lot, but I also knew it was an incredibly difficult profession. And uh, I uh, then I got accepted to California Institute of the Arts. Uh, I can't remember. Somebody told me one time long ago, but uh, it was something like, I can't remember, 8,000 people auditioned for 13 slots or something like that across America. And I got accepted. Uh, and so I went to California to the arts, got a master's degree in acting. And, uh, that was, 
when I made that decision to go there, that was the decision to, okay, I guess I'm going to try this. So CalArts, yeah, that's a pretty big deal. I'm curious to hear, you know, like what you learned during your time there. It was just really good. It was, a. Uh, uh, I was lucky when I was at Washington State, there were two really uh, divergent directors. One who was real brass tacks, louder, faster, funnier, when all else fails, you know, uh, drop your pants and show them your tits, a big entertainer, old school, commedia dell'art director. And uh, then another guy who was all about method. Uh, and uh, um, so I got a, a nice uh, mix there. So when I got to CalArts and I was dealing with literally six different acting instructors and professors, I mean, they were all in the same program, but they didn't all teach the same stuff. And yeah. so there was quite quite a wide variety of uh, methods and tactics, and you're just taking it all in. And uh, I heard them early when they said, we're just going to pound you with information, and you're going to take what you need to be a professional actor and discard what you don't. And uh, I did end up doing that. Uh, so I, I was able to uh, navigate that interesting because there's a lot of politics and a lot of well you should do it my way uh and ego in theater so uh it, it gave it gave me the tools to adapt uh on the fly to each director in each circumstance which served me really well when i got out and got into working on the stages in the beginning i started my career on the stage up in seattle and did a lot of big productions and plays got to play some great parts up in seattle played hamlet played stanley kowalski uh you know worked at the seattle rep in the intamon theater and uh uh so i had a big stage background and i classics did a lot of shakespeare um which uh eventually when it comes to star trek uh that's uh, an advantageous thing because junie lowry johnson and ron surma the casting directors, uh, they really leaned at theater people in their casting. If, if you, as you, as you, I'm sure know, interviewing actors and people involved with Star Trek, uh, uh, I just think it lends itself the, the wardrobe, the costumes, the masks, it lends itself to a bigger, more gothic yeah. performance. And, uh, um, the theater trained people could bring that to the audition and, uh, also, you know, bring it to that, to the, some of those, I mean, some of the makeups are, you know, myself, especially uh, just buried in latex. So, you know, you, it, it, you don't know if what you think you're doing is translating out of all of that latex sometimes when you're in there doing it. So it's, it was an interesting process. And, uh, uh, and, uh, so I didn't really, I, I always really liked movies. I always really liked watching it. I, but I didn't think when I was in high school, I was going to be a professional actor or anything like that. Uh, I don't think I look back on it. I, I didn't really think, oh, that's what I'm going to do. I daydreamed about being in a movie and things like that. Like I think all kids do, but uh, not until I was midway through Washington state did I begin to think, oh, I'm, I may end up trying to do this. And then when I got accepted to Cal arts, and was going to spend all that money on grad school, I thought you better know you want to do it because that's a huge commitment. 
Well, that's definitely money well spent. And I totally agree with you what you said about how, you know, Shakespeare and Star Trek and really theater people, especially they meld into Star Trek so easily. It's, it really is just such an easy marriage. And we see it so many times on this podcast. And I feel like that's a really great segue to actually start getting into some of the Trek talk here. Cause normally yeah. I kind of save that for later, but, uh, you know, according to your IMDb page, your very first role was in a Star Trek show on TV. So, you know, the thing too about your roles, essentially your first two Star Trek roles, they basically aired like a week apart from each other, which is like, such a yeah, weird. and and in some places they aired the same night. <laughs> That's crazy. Which was incredibly cool. I mean, I shot Tosk first. Deep Space Nine was first. That was my my first guest star in Hollywood was Tosk on Deep Space Nine. An incredibly well written episode. Um, good. You know, I've always been lucky when it comes to Star Trek. I, I've always had great writing. Uh, you know, sometimes there's those episodes that people say, eh, you know, that episode wasn't that good and all that stuff. But I, I was in really well-written episodes with great pathos and drama. And uh, so I felt I always felt fortunate in that regard that I that I caught great episodes that were really, really, really well-written. That talks episode is very, very popular to this day. I do sci-fi conventions. And it's amazing to me that a character that appeared in as a guest star in one episode in season one uh, uh, turned out to be uh, so popular. Uh, I've had many people tell me that Tosk is one of their favorite characters ever from Star Trek, which is an amazing compliment (laughs) to an actor when you consider, you know, the bulk of fantastic work that went on in all of these shows over all of these decades. That's a very flattering thing to say. You know, so uh, uh, I've, I've often said that about when you go to those sci-fi conventions, it's a little bit like getting a little bit of applause because, <laughs> you know, fans come up and let you know what they think. And most of the time it's kind. <laughs> Sometimes it's not. Well, I can promise you only kind words here because really your Trek roles were very meaty, very substantial and all they are real, all very good. Uh, but let's let's spend some more time on Tosk here, and that's season one, DS9. The episode is Captive Pursuit. So uh, what do you remember about the audition here? And I'm also curious, by the way, if this at all ties into your second role, because I'm wondering, you know, how close these two are also shot together. He Tosk, Tosk was an incredibly long and interesting audition process, and I was pretty new down there to Hollywood. I came down to L.A. I was in a play called The Kentucky Cycle. It started in Seattle, and... Uh, it was a six-hour, two-part history play about the U- U.S. that won the Pulitzer Prize for drama. That and is it a was magnum the first, right there. And it was the first uh, play that had ever won the Pulitzer Prize that didn't start in New York. We started in Seattle. We kind of did it backwards. We went to Seattle. Then we went down to the Mark Taper Forum. Then we went into the Kennedy Center. Then we went into Broadway. And I was in it the whole way. Uh, it was an incredibly uh, interesting and fantastic experience in many regards. And there was a lull before we went east. And it was in that lull that I auditioned for and got Tosk and Nevek. Uh, I think we were down about a year before we went east after we closed at the Mark Taper Forum in L.A. And uh, I went in and read for Tosk. They had renderings in there of kind of what he looked like. And uh, then I got called back for a second audition and they gave me a lot of adjustments. And I was naive enough 
Like they gave me these one specific adjustments and said, we want him to be a little bit more frightening. You see these renderings of what he looks like. And I actually, not knowing that you're not really supposed to do that, I argued with him about it a little. <laughs> I said, no, I, I completely disagree. I don't, I don't think so. I, this guy's kind of an adaptoid. He's leaping from planet to planet, uh, galaxy to galaxy on the run. He, I think he figures out each planet he's on as fast as he can in order to get what he needs in order to continue to escape and stay alive. He literally says, I live the greatest adventure one could ever imagine. So he, every minute he's alive, he thinks he's winning. So I laughed and I told a good friend of mine who's an actor about that, who had done uh, a Star Trek. And he said, you said that in the room? And I said, yeah. And he said, were the producers in there? And I said, I don't know. I think so. There was about eight people in there. And he said, yeah, the producers are in there. I bet you're not going to get that job. <laughs> and uh, I thought, oh, well, I, I, I don't I didn't know that I wasn't supposed to say that. Then I got another call back and I went back uh, a third time, which I thought this must be the normal process. But in my career now, I realize it was really rare. And I think I look back on it, I'm pretty sure they were uncertain whether or not they could afford to hire me for a lead guest star when I was inexperienced. Uh, and there was a lot of people there auditioning for Tosk who I recognized from TV sitting in the lobby. Mm. So it was kind of intimidating. Uh, a lot of faces that I knew, oh, that guy, he was on this. And oh, that guy, he was on that. A lot of people from current TV shows at the time, you know, I remember there was a guy there who was a series regular on LA law and, uh, just lo lots of people like that. And I went in the room and, uh, there was a silver haired gentleman in there with a beard. His name was Corey Allen and he's a great director, a great acting instructor. I found out subsequently, but he was, uh, from the method school of acting he he's with James Dean, Dennis Hopper, all of those guys. He was in that school of people. And he's the guy who went over the cliff in Rebel Without a Cause in the car. That's him as a young man in Hollywood. And he had segued into being a director. So Corey, I was reading the thing and they kept giving me these instructions on how to play it pretty specific. And in my, I was of the opinion that they were wrong. They continued to try to make me meaner. And Corey was helping me kind of, it was really interesting and uh, rewarding. I look back on it. He was helping me. He was, re he started, he said, let me do this. And he came down in front of the table and he read with me. He auditioned with me and he would whisper little, little bits of information to me. And then they would give me an adjustment and Corey would say, do that or don't. I don't care if you don't do what they just told you to do. I want you to do what you want to do. I want you to put your stamp on this part. And I had thought a lot about it and I was a Star Trek fan. My opinion about Tosk was he's the first creature to come through the black hole, uh, the wormhole. And uh, I thought everything he sees is new to him. So he's got this amazement, but also this necessity for information in order to, you know, I mean, he literally goes on the computer and says, show me where the weapons are stored. 
I mean, that's a, that's a little bit of a giveaway that, uh, you know, the information that you want and you need and you desire. And he's not planning on using it against Deep Space Nine. He's planning on using it against his enemies, but he's not thinking about what they're thinking. He's just thinking about his purpose. And Corey really responded to all of that stuff. He just kept saying, he just kept looking over at them and saying, that's great motivation. That's great acting. That's acting coming from a specific choice with a super objective and all of these kinds of, you know, acting class phrases. And I kept working and we kept doing it and everything. And they kept giving me adjustments and giving me adjustments. And uh, again, I, I was probably out of line. I was arguing with them about it a little bit and protecting my idea of Tosk. And uh, we got to the end and they had me read the speech to O'Brien when he won't accept asylum, which is a great piece of writing. Uh, And by that time, I sort of had it reasonably well memorized because we'd been doing it. I was in there a long time. It, I bet it was an hour or 45 minutes in the room audition. And that was, it. it's unheard of. I look back on it now and, th- you know, I assume they always did it that way because it was my first really big guest star audition. And we got done reading it and Corey, they set at, peppered me with some more questions and Corey said, I don't think we need to see anymore. And he was aggravated on my behalf, not at me, but a little bit at them. And he thanked me for my performance. He told me he thought my choices were well-motivated and very intelligent. He thanked me for my efforts. He said, we're not going to waste any more of your time. And then he turned at that and looked at all of those people, all of those producers and said, Does anyone else have any more questions for this fine actor? And he was mad. His face got all red. I was startled by it. And uh, I wound up booking it. uh, And I left thinking, who knows? I mean, I didn't really know how to gauge what had happened in that room. Uh, But he was massively supportive of me once on set, too. And it was grueling. I was it was a six and a half hour makeup. My body was fully encased in latex. The only parts of my body that were exposed were my palms of my hands and my eyelids. I was covered in latex and neoprene in my wardrobe. Uh, I lost 16 and a half pounds in an eight day shoot just sweating. I couldn't eat much solid food because they glued the mask inside my lips. Wow. The first time ever Michael Westmore did it. And Tosk ended up winning the Emmy that year for makeup, best makeup on television. Uh, So there was a lot lot that went into it, a lot of struggle because he had a lot of dialogue, a lot of techno babble. I had fangs and it was glued inside my lips. So the enunciation and the, doing justice to all that great dialogue uh that 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 performance was incredibly difficult so i've i've always been really proud of it because when you're doing it and you're inside all that latex i mean you don't have any facial expression none whatsoever it's your face is gone no eyebrows no smiles no no twinkle of the eye no nothing everything actors rely on non-existent you're inside that latex so I sat in the makeup chair for all those hours, kind of 
adjusting and looking and thinking, okay, this looks this way, this looks inquisitive, this looks that way. So I was determining how, when I had to deliver those lines and give them some variety, I could do something. That's why Tosk is very physical. I do a lot of big, huge head moves and things like that and big swirling turns because uh, I loved that mask and I wanted the light to catch it. I wanted it to alter. It was just a masterpiece. I think the guy's name was Gil Mosco who put it on me every day. Westmore designed it, but Gil put it on me. And uh, and it was tough, man. Three o'clock in the morning, I'd get there and I wouldn't get out of the chair until 9 a.m. And then I'd walk over and they'd spend a half hour kind of putting that neoprene suit on me and uh then we'd start and uh and i had makeup on the backs of my hands on uh, on well i had the they the it was also glued onto my arms halfway around my arms and then there was makeup on my palms and down the interior of my arm they had all these ideas that you were going to see tosk work some massive cool technological stuff that he was really adept and uh so the makeup was extensive in that regard because of it. And he, uh, uh, at one point, the director, Corey just said, yeah, we ain't going to have time for all that. <laughs> <laughs> so all of that makeup on my arms and everything, we ended up that we could have just used gloves, but they thought there was going to be close-ups of Toss doing massively intricate and cool, uh, scientific things with his, uh, at, you know, sped up speed so that Tosk is like super fast on the computer and super fast at this and super fast at that really adept. And, uh, that stuff all kind of went out the window because it, uh, you know, you have eight days to shoot them and, uh, uh, they just ran out of time for some of that stuff. But Renee Bergenois, Armin Shimmerman, Colm Meany, uh, I was really lucky. All of my stuff was with very high quality actors and, uh, and uh, Tosk was popular. They liked him. Um, there were interesting kind of crowds gathering to watch the work. And the interesting thing is no one knew, no one knew what I looked like because <laughs> I arrived before them and left after them. It took an hour and a half to get out of it every night. So I literally had almost an eight hour day just in the makeup chair. So as a as a as a starving theater actor, there was a lot of overtime, which which was <laughs> fantastic for me at the time. It was much needed dollars too. <laughs> Trek Untold will return momentarily. Trek Untold is sponsored by Triple Fiction Productions. Celebrating 15 years in business in 2023, TFP creates 3D-printed Star Trek and sci-fi-inspired items that fit into any collection. Whether you're a cosplayer who wants a Starfleet phaser, a Bajoran tricorder, or a Klingon dagger, or a toy collector looking for that special accessory or diorama to make your figures truly stand out, Triple Fiction Productions has exactly what you need. And for you figure fanatics, that includes products that are the perfect size for Galoob, Mego, Playmates, and everything in between. All products are 3D printed in the U.S., with new designs constantly being updated on their website. Repeat customers can sign up for TFP's loyalty program for free, which is a great way to save money as you build your collection. 
Repeat customers can sign up for TFP's loyalty program for free, which is a great way to save money as you build your collection. Repeat customers can sign up for TFP's loyalty program for free, where the more you order, the more discounts you receive. TFP also has a pay what you want section, where clearance or misprinted items are available at a discounted price. Best of all, every product can be shipped worldwide. As a special bonus for listeners of this show, Trek Untold has a special discount code just for you. Enter UNTOLD10 at checkout for 10% off of all orders with no minimum purchase required. That's 10% off using UNTOLD10. To see all of their products, head to triple-fictionproductions.net. Or to stay up to date on their newest products, find them on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Triple Fiction Productions, where something is only impossible until it happens. Have you ever watched a YouTube video and said you wish you could do what they were doing? Whether it's the filming, the production, the editing. Maybe you listen to your favorite podcast and you wondered how they put that show together. How they got that great sound quality. What gear they used. How much does it cost to get started? Or maybe you checked out a video or read a book about one of your favorite entrepreneurs and it made you say, I want to live that life. I want to do what they do. Then check out my podcast, Toys and Tech of the Trade. I'm Rich Butler, and I've been making podcasts for almost two decades, speaking with experts across all fields to get to the bottom of the hows and whys of their achievements. Each week, I sit down with these amazing people who have carved their own path in life and share the gadgets, the gear, and the tech that they rely on to create their content, the methods that they use to run their business, and the habits and trends that are part of their daily routine and their way of life. And all of that, of course, gets put together to make them successful. We pull back the curtain on the process to help you understand what these people do differently so that you can draw inspiration and get ideas and be inspired so that you can take action today. This podcast is inspiring, educational, it's enlightening, and most of all, it's a lot of fun. I want you to join me on this journey so that you can use the tools and advice shared in this podcast to level up your business or creative endeavors, giving you all the tips, tactics, and tools so that you can transform what you're doing from a side hustle into a full-time lifestyle where you can collect a paycheck for doing what you love. Check out Toys and Tech of the Trade wherever you listen to podcasts and check out the RageWorks Network at RageWorksNetwork.com for more info on this podcast and all of the many other great shows that we have on the RageWorks Podcast Network. That's Toys and Tech of the Trade with some assembly required. Yeah, I want to go back to what you said a few moments ago uh, about some of the things you're saying with how you were making your choices for your character. And what you said kind of reminded me of some stuff I've heard from like Stella Adler, where it was kind of like, you know, the pages are there to give you that information. But then ultimately, it is what you do to make your choices. But you are essentially doing what the script is telling you to do. It's all the information is there right for you. Uh, And so and feel free to kind of use like all your Star Trek roles if you want to as examples of this. But like, you know, the stuff you're telling me, you basically answer all the questions I was going to ask you because it was like, you know, here's all the choices. Here's what you did. Here's why you did it. Did you yes. do this kind of homework and, and kind of care into all these characters for every single Star Trek role that you had? Uh, I, yeah, you know, you let your imagination run wild. Uh, Tosk was just interesting because of, uh, you know, I had a little bit of carte blanche in my mind because he was the first one through the wormhole. Yeah. So I was inventing something. So it, I couldn't be wrong in my mind. I just thought, you know, like in one scene, uh, Tosk arrives and I have my whole first opening scene inside my ship with Colm Meany. And then he walks me out into Deep Space Nine. 
And I go out and I made a right turn and we had rehearsed it. We had blocked it and walked it. But then when I got there, all the atmosphere and everybody were moving around. The station was buzzing. People were around. And uh, Siddig was standing in the in the uh, uh, station over there, the med station. And I I didn't know that he was a series regular because I didn't know who was in this show yet. It was I think we were the I think we I think it aired the sixth episode, but I think we were the fourth one they filmed. So uh, I walked over to him and put my face right up by his face like this close and looked him over up and down and then turned and walked back and got really close to O'Brien and then kept walking. And they finished the take and Corey said, cut, cut, cut. Okay, what happened there? That wasn't in the rehearsal. That blocking, what was that? What what were you doing there? And I said, well, and you're probably going to think this is silly, but I have this idea that these crazy cat's eye lenses that I have in my eyes have a kind of a heat sensor and a, and in them. So when if I get close enough, I can gauge what the culture is like and how their blood is. And I thought, if I get close to another human, I can compare him to this human. And then I sort of know how humans are. And Corey smiled and kind of shook his head and said, okay, stop, stop what you're doing. I want everybody over here who wants to be an actor, all atmosphere to come here. If you want to be an actor, come over here. And he called everybody over. And I thought, oh, no, am I in hot water? Maybe I went too far. And he said, I want you to repeat what you just said to me. So I explained it all again. And Corey said, looked at all of those people and said, if you want to be an actor, you have to motivate your choices. This is an actor. Study him while he works. Or words to that effect. It was incredibly flattering. I was, you know, and I was nervous. I think it was my first day and I wasn't sure how, you know, I mean, you're buried in this suit and it took you forever to get into it. And you're just hoping what you're doing is right. Cause I was brand new to the set too. You find, you know, I couldn't see very well with those cat's eye contact lenses. So it was hard for me to see the tape marks on the floor and hit my spots. Sometimes I'd miss. And Marvin Rush is a very good cinematographer and he, he wanted you know, he wanted me on a specific spot. He said, I can't rack focus to you unless you hit that mark. And I said, it's hard for me to see it. So we would work things out. Marvin would say, you know, so when you get to here and you make that little turn and you do that little thing, I like that because that gives me time to move the camera down here. And then once you do that, it's one, two, three steps. So let's just practice it. You know, so Marvin was helping me too. Because uh, like I say, you know, you can't hear, you can't see hard to talk. It's a, it was a war zone inside that Tosk outfit. It was a war zone. So yeah, there was uh there was a lot of really cool, ultra flattering stuff that went on, on that shoot. It was a great first job. This hat, by the way, you mentioned it earlier, deep space nine hat. This hat was given to me by Michael Piller. I was on the set day three or something and it was going pretty well and everybody seemed pretty happy and all of the producers were walking around wearing these things and uh 
I just off the cuff said, do you think I could get one of those? And he was flummoxed and didn't really know how to say no, I think. And, uh, <laughs> well, you know, the, it's kind of the producers and this and that. And I said, oh, I'm just a guy who wears ball caps. I just think it's really a cool hat. I'll, it's okay. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't have to have it. I just thought I'd ask in case there's like a room full of them somewhere and that everybody on the crew has them. And he said, no, that's not really the case. And I said, okay, you know, and then, uh, day five, I went into my trailer and, uh, there was a hat sitting on my, in my, in my little, in my little trailer when I got in there. Uh, so he had found me one. Uh, so that was kind of him, you know, he was, uh, uh, all hail Michael Piller. He was a great man. We lost him in, I think 2005. And, uh, uh, he was always really good to me and, uh, he used to come and see me in, in, in my, in, in my numerous Star Trek personas. He, he used to come and say hi all the time, which, uh, it's thrilling when you're a guest star actor and an executive producer comes by to shake your hand or tell you he thinks you're good or something that doesn't happen all the time. So yeah. he, he was a really cool human being. So here's to RIP and thanks for the hat. I just found it by the way, just uh, not too long ago, I was digging around in some boxes and found some old stuff. And uh, I found, I found my, uh, I found my scripts from, oh, wow. from these shows which by the way 30 years ago right around now we filmed them because they aired in early 93 so we shot them in fallish of 92 i'm pretty sure so for folks who don't know right now we're doing this interview mid-november so yeah it's pretty close to yeah wow that's that's actually really cool i didn't realize that we were that close to that proper anniversary yeah it's also painful to say out loud that it was 30 years (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> don't remind me I'm, I'm feeling those years too now but uh you know yeah again i just want to compliment you too because it really is an amazing role it is such a substantial role there's so much going on here it is you know a lot of times you could talk to actors and you'll they'll talk about the roles and things like that and, and you know you don't, you don't quite see i guess how much goes into them even on this show sometimes but tosk is a very demanding role in a lot of ways not just through the performance but through the fact that you had all those constraints on you as well so uh, really, it's, you did a beautiful job with that character, and I love hearing Thank you. I was like, I, 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 I've always been really proud of that one because that, that, that makeup was tough. That was tough. That was a tough way to get a character through. I and I always thought he should be sensitive so you can root for him, and uh, I was worried that he might not come off that way because you don't have a face. You don't have your face. So, uh, yeah, I was proud of that one. That was a, that was a, that was a fun first role. And like I've said, that the people respond well to that role. Then in, while I was shooting Tosk, uh, you asked about the two things being shot pretty close together. Yes, they were. Uh, while I was shooting Tosk, they delivered a script to me for next generation for face of the enemy while I was there. So I remember sitting in my Tosk outfit, looking at the next generation script a little bit on breaks and things like that, sitting in, sitting in the, in the, in the, in the chairs, uh, in between shots and things, kind of looking at it and trying to get an idea of it, of what was going on. And it was, you know, a Romulan. And I thought, Oh, that's good. Uh, I know those guys. 
Well, you know, I, I think a lot of folks really flocked to Toss because, you know, what you did with the character was you did make him very sympathetic. And that's very easy for someone to think to kind of identify with those, those kinds of qualities in the character. Um, so yeah, I also think another big part of that too is the fact that you had, uh, this relationship with Colmini's character with O'Brien that yeah. also really helped make him a lot more of a human kind of character. So, yeah. you know, I think Colmini doesn't quite get the credit he deserves for the roles that he's done on Star Trek. Uh, so I'd love to hear, you know, what you liked working with him. Like, what, what did he bring out of you when you guys worked together? He was just great in that episode. And, uh, I did some, again, I did some things that I didn't know you weren't supposed to do. Um, <laughs> I started to, I decided that the universal translator only kind of works for Toss because he's not from, he's from the other side of the wormhole. So that was where I developed that sort of broken speech pattern. The halting, because he's, I felt like, okay, this guy's kind of learning the language on the fly. That was where I came up with stuff like, oh, Brian. Uh, and so whenever I could get a two syllable word instead of a one syllable word, I would ask, is it all right if we change this to this? Like, I remember one of them was, you know, can it be fixed? I'm talking to Calm and, uh, I just said, can I say repaired? Can it be repaired? So, so that I could get a one, two, a one, two repaired. And I didn't know that when you ask that stuff, it goes way up a bunch of channels to those writers. And you, cause I mean, you, you gotta be word perfect on this show. And, uh, I didn't realize I was creating a kerfuffle, uh, I just asked because of this idea, this notion that I had of it kept me in the rhythm of toss. So I would occasionally ask to change a word. And uh, <laughs> uh, one day, maybe four days in, five days in, Colm got kind of mad and said, you can't do that. And I said, what? Do what? And he said, you can't ask him to change script words all the time. It really slows us down. I said, the script supervisor's right over there. She'll just write it in, won't she? Because I had been in this play that was incredibly collaborative and, you know, it's theater and you're working things out and it was a brand new piece of writing. So you're getting new pages and working them out and talking about them and everything. So I kind of had that dynamic going in my head on this show too. And that's not the case on television, on television, this is your words and you better say them. Uh, but I didn't know it at the time and I was doing that. So he was a little bit annoyed with me about that. So, you know, I apologized and said, oh, geez, I didn't even know. I said, and then I explained to him my thinking. And uh, he said, well, when you get the pages the night before, when you come in in the morning, tell them the words you want to change. They'll send them upstairs. They'll do them all in one big shot. And then we won't have to stop and wait. He said, that's what all this waiting is. Every time you say, can I say this? They're phoning up somewhere and asking if you can do that. Uh, so I, a little bit was, I guess, out of bounds. I just didn't know I was. I, it was just sheer naivete. But, uh, uh, but for the most part, he loved the episode. I've read things subsequently after that. It's one of his favorites. And, uh, uh, he, he was great because 
He brings this light lilt of humor to it. He gets a kick out of Tosk, which makes Tosk more endearing because, you know, the Federation guy, the hero guy, keeps kind of being surprised at Tosk's innocence on certain things. And then, of course, Tosk's capabilities and his uh, circumstance, which is that he's, you know, they all it was a great piece of writing because they flipped the prime directive. They flipped it on you. Everyone wants Tosk to want to be free, except Tosk. Tosk feels like he is. Tosk just tried, you know, that great speech he says, you know, where he basically just says, I can't accept asylum. I live the greatest adventure one can ever imagine. And so for Tosk, the ultimate fox and the ultimate fox hunt, every minute that he's alive, he's winning. And I think people respond to that. And, uh, also, that nice little wrinkle at the end where Avery looks the other way on O'Brien's violation of the Prime Directive, kind of, sort of, maybe. And uh, you begin to get that sense of him as an excellent leader of the station. That's one of the first early signs of his humanity you know, on that series. Avery's, I mean, not, not Combs. Combs was clear on next generation and carried over into deep space nine. But, uh, yeah, calm was great. And he took me out for drinks after we got done. There used to be a little bar. I can't remember the name of it anymore. I wish I could on the lot at Paramount. And I said, well, you know, I, I'm, it's going to take me almost two hours to get out of this stuff. So, you know, I, I, I'm really grateful for the offer, but don't, you know, I, I don't know. So, but when I got there, Corey Allen was still there and Colm was still there. Everybody else had gone home. And so I got to have a couple drinks with those guys, uh, which was a great uh, cherry on top of what was already a really, really cool week. I also, walking from my makeup trailer back to makeup from the makeup room back to my trailer, wearing this terry cloth robe and these big fuzzy slippers they gave me wearing this lizard head and these lizard arms. One morning I was walking back it was right about nine and coming through the gates of Paramount Studio, driving a beautiful green Jaguar was Patrick Stewart. Oh, wow. Pulled right up to his trailer. I was walking right in front of it on my way back. He got out of his car. He was just getting ready to go in. And I said, excuse me, Mr. Stewart, Mr. Stewart. I just wanted to thank you because you did something for me. I know you wouldn't recognize me, but uh, you came to see our play, The Kentucky Cycle, last year at the Mark Taper Forum. And we were all in the bar afterwards at the restaurant nearby. You came out of the men's room, walked over, and you bought our table drinks. And he said, oh, I remember that. And, and I said, I just wanted to thank you for that because it was so cool of you. You said. I'm not buying you the drinks because your performance was fantastic. And it was. I'm buying you the drinks because when I opened that door and I saw you all sitting there, my heart leapt out of my chest and I thought, oh, the actors. <laughs> and he said, I, he said, you reminded me all of when I was a boy in the West End and I used to see the actors walking on the streets in London. And uh, so I'm buying your drinks because of that, which was just just a it was just really cool. And so he said, are you doing our show? And I said, no, no, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm overdoing a lead guest star on deep space nine. Uh, he said, can you sit and talk theater for just a few minutes with me this morning right now? <laughs> I said, 
I can't, I got to go to work. I, you know, and he said, just a moment. And he went in and he made a phone call. This is Patrick, but, 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 but came back out and he said, you have 15 minutes. <laughs> and he pulled out a little lawn chair and he set it down for me. And I sat down and he ordered himself some breakfast. My memory of it is it was tea and toast. And, uh, <laughs> Uh, I sat and talked about the Kentucky cycle with Patrick Stewart wearing my lizard head and my terry cloth robe on the lot of Paramount. I, I mean, I wish I would. I wish I had a movie camera hovering <laughs> above so that I could have just a few minutes of that conversation. It was just I was so thrilled. My my heart was jumping out of my chest that I was sitting there with this great actor. And uh, so, you know, little things like that. And then the, later that same day he brought Jonathan Frakes over and they were in their full uniforms and they were watching me work just wow. off on the side, watching me work. But they were, they were shooting their episode and we were shooting ours and they came over and one of the crew guys said, they ain't been over here yet. That's kind of cool. So it, there's just little things like that, that uh, for me as an actor, were just so thrilling uh, on top of the fact that after it came out, it was really well received. So it was an incredibly gratifying first job on a, a whole many, so many different levels that it's hard for me to express. Other than to just say, you know, I was just proud of the fact that it turned out well, because it was a battle inside that suit. I had an eye tech. That's the other thing. I had an eye tech. His name was Jean-Pierre. Because I had so much makeup on my hands, I couldn't touch my own eyes. And I had those yeah. cat's eye contact lenses, and they were hard contacts. Yeah. I imagine old, you old, the old, old school hard contacts with a hole cut in the pupil. So, man, when those things got a little off, they hurt. It hurt. I'd be right in the middle of a take and just go, uh, 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 and lay down on the ground. And, they, and you'd hear, Jean-Pierre, Jean-Pierre, Jean-Pierre. And he'd run in. And he'd stick his finger in my eye. And adjust it and straighten it so it would stay this way because sometimes they'd roll, you know. So we'd be right in the middle of it, lots of takes and they'd say, cut, cut, cut. And I'd say, that's it, isn't it? Isn't that the line? And and they'd say, yeah, your contact is spinning. <laughs> and so then they started to do this thing where, you know, they, you know, they say speed, camera, sound, rolling, and action. They'd say speed, camera, sound. Jean-Pierre and this guy would walk up and stick his finger in my eye and take it away and they'd say action <laughs> now I don't know if you've ever had anybody else's finger in your eye but I hadn't uh and it's disconcerting so I finally had to go to Corey and say look you got to give me like a 10 second count after that to kind of get my head back together. Cause I, every time that guy reaches for my eye, I, my mind starts to flinch and toss goes away and Scott McDonald's protective devices kick in. And, you know, you got to help me with that. And he just said, okay, that's what we'll do then. So, you know, he'd take these beats and then there'd be a little like five second pause. And then he'd say action real quiet. So he was, he, his vibe was great. We were on the same page, Corey and I, 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 I got nothing but good things to say about that gentleman. He was a great actor in his time and a really, really good television director. I mean, I'm glad that you had such an amazing first experience doing Star Trek. I mean, you know, if you said that meeting Patrick Stewart and having a conversation with him was the cherry on top, I think we got to talk about the icing, or if you want, maybe the, maybe the uh, the whipped cream, if you will, underneath it, because 
Tosk has also been immortalized in plastic. There's a Tosk action figure. Your very first TV role, you got an action figure, Scott. Tell me. That's, number one, that's, does that? Do you think that thing looks like you? I mean, what what is it like to have an action? It's figure? It's a great. It's a great one. It's a it great is. one. I actually have uh, one of them out of the box. It's in our kitchen. <laughs> we have all of these. We have this kind of interesting little display in the dining room. Well, kitchen breakfast nook uh, of. To- boys' favorite toys, action figures when they were little, and some like I got a a, a Matchbox car, Bat- Batmobile from when I was a kid out there. Just little knickknacks like that. So Tosk is in with the knickknacks. Yeah, I uh, uh, I have I have my own action figure for him and for Commander Dolem. That's true. Commander Dolem got one too. So I that's a that's rare air. <laughs> yeah, I was amazed. I was amazed when that came out. Uh, some somebody called me and said, "Do you know there's an action figure of you for Star Trek?" And I thought, "Yeah, right, sure there is." You know, <laughs> and uh, so that was that was a lot of fun too. Yeah, my uh, a good friend of mine used to have a website up about Star Trek, and uh, he would interview me or put something up on there. This is the early days of the web, and uh, he said. Uh, uh, what did he say? Oh, he he, he had it, he had it there, and, and he it said getting a little action. <laughs> Russell, yeah, that is a truly amazing experience you had as Tosk, and uh, well, I'm so glad it was so positive for you. But I got to hear now because again, this is side by side essentially, or just right after you finished DS9, you're now jumping onto the Enterprise because now we're talking TNG, and you are the Romulan Navek in the episode Face of the Enemy, which is a very good episode, yes. also centered around Deanna Troy. Uh, so let's just start again with the makeup, I think, because I think that's an important thing. So makeup, I would hope, would be less arduous than Tosk, but I imagine the wardrobe might be even harder because those Romulans, they, they need some fashion help. Uh, no, it was nice because it was a zip-on, zip-off coat. I could get it on and off fairly quickly. Uh, Tosk, got, when I got hot, it was over. I was hot all day. Uh, there was no getting out of anything as Tosk, literally. I didn't get, couldn't get out of any of it. We used to dump the sweat out of my boots at the end of the day when I played toss and it was a good bit of it. Uh, and you know, those things were ruined by the time we got done. They were, I, they were soaking wet all day. Yeah. Nivek, the makeup, uh, I remember the second day I was sitting in the makeup chair and, uh, they were putting it on me and the makeup guy said kind of cavalier to me, so have you ever had to sit in a makeup chair so long, you know, two and a half hours? And I just, I didn't say it, you know, I just said, oh, no, I really enjoy it. it I don't have any problem with it. But in my mind, I was thinking, buddy, I got six hours in my pocket from last week, seven out of the eight days we shot, and I can do this standing on my head. <laughs> but I didn't say it. I got to ask you, Scott, too, like, what are you doing sitting in that makeup chair? Because, you know, we're talking about Tosk. That is six hours, but even two and a half hours is still, for most people, a marathon. So what are you doing in that chair during those entire times where you're getting all that makeup applied to you? Nothing. Nothing sometimes just staring at the space? Look, sometimes, sometimes looking at your lines, if you if you can. But for the most part, they they control you. They control your face. And I had the, he had an assistant on Tosk who was doing my face. Uh, and it was, uh, there were three parts to that thing. I glued the back on and I, I just, we finally, we got it down from six hours to probably about four and a half by the last couple of days, we got pretty efficient at it and they made six of them. They thought I would, they thought we would ruin one every day, but, uh, 
we only ended up using two of them and they were really surprised by that because usually they get torn up taking them off you every day so uh but yeah the romulan was interesting because they sent me that script and then uh i finished tosk on a monday and uh that was the eighth day of the shoot and i had had a uh a 22 and a half hour day on the friday before so i was pretty smashed uh i got there at three in the morning and didn't get out till 1 30 and then you got the weekend to bounce back and then i came back in and i had one last full day in the tosk makeup and then the next morning i think i got off the studio lot at about two in the morning and i had to be back at paramount in the morning for the nevec audition at 10 in the morning wow i didn't feel super prepared i didn't really feel great about that audition um but and you don't think in your mind that you're going to get it because you just got something else from the other show and all of those sorts of things i thought there's no way this is going to happen i just put i just put a turn on him i mean romulans are super uptight to begin with and this guy's a spy within the spies of the Romulan empire working for Spock's underground. So uh, I just turned up the tension and, you know, Nivek is an uptight cat and uh, everything that happens feels like the end of the world to him. And he says, so, you know, our plan has collapsed and all the things like that, you know, he's not, he's not thinking, okay, now what are we going to do? He's thinking, Oh no, now I'm doomed. And Marina of course steers him and, you know, you did this to me. You did that to me. You can't quit now. And, uh, but Marina was great. She, she was great. That was, again, I got lucky. That's a really, really well-written episode, really well-written. And Carolyn Seymour, who is my captain, Mm -hmm. uh, we subsequently became friends after the fact doing conventions and things like that. Uh, and on set, she was terrific to work with great actress, lots of Star Trek credits. Gabrielle Beaumont was the director, Marina and Carolyn, they were all Brits. And I was not a Brit, so I was not in the Brit club. <laughs> so they were kibitzing and hanging out together and giggling and laughing. And I was a little bit outside of that on that show. And I was in season one of Deep Space Nine. They were still figuring it out. Like I said, I think I was the fourth episode. So they, you know, they were they were moving slow, trying to sort stuff out. Next gen was a well-oiled machine. They were well-oiled. That show shot way faster. So I was kind of used to that speed of Deep Space Nine. So I was a little bit taken aback. And uh, uh, But again, great writing. Marina was great to work with. I got along really well with her. Uh, that was, it was really fun to be on that because I was, I was a huge Next Generation fan before I got on the show. I remember... I was up in Seattle doing theater when the when the Locutus cliffhanger happened. Yep. Uh, you know the season ender, and I I was I was doing a I was doing a play. I was working, you know, six days a week, eight show weeks. I, I I didn't I wasn't paying attention to the TV guide or what was going on. I didn't realize it was the cliffhanger and it wasn't going to be on all the way till the fall. When I watched it, you know, I would record them and then watch them when I got home from doing the play. And, uh, uh, so I was thrilled to be on Star Trek, the next generation. I didn't have a scene with, um, Picard, but, uh, 
well, I was going to have a scene with Picard, but it changed. So, you know, one thing we didn't talk about with DS9, and this is going to tie together, is the sets. Because, you know, you talk about being a big Star Trek fan, so you also know they tend to have, like, really amazing sci-fi sets. So, uh, you know, I'd love to hear a little bit about just what you thought of them. Because, you know, DS9, again, first season, you're, like, one of the first guest stars to ever see the Promenade and all those crazy Cardassian architecture spaces. Uh, but then we're coming over to the Romulan ship, and it looks like the inside of a terrible Tex-Mex franchise restaurant. So... Uh, I'd love to kind of hear your thoughts on seeing the sets and also if that helps inform any decisions that you're making as a character. Well, it's just thrilling. I mean, it's just thrilling. Uh, just walking around and looking at it all and being in that proximity to this thing that you've been watching and knowing about, you know, it's it, it, so, you know, there's, you got to kind of put that fan away and become the character yeah, the Romulan sets. Uh, I remember kind of thinking that it was where in, there's that scene where we're all dining. Yeah. And uh, that was kind of fun because it was just something that had never really occurred to me. Oh, of course. How do Romulans eat dinner? You know, <laughs> do they eat dinner the same way we do? Do they eat on the go or that, you know, do they not sit down? And, uh, you know, all of that food that they put in front of you. And, I hate to interrupt you, but I have to know because I always ask guess this whenever they have an eating scene do you recall what the heck they served you to eat that day no i i didn't take any bites i didn't take any bites uh so i don't Probably know smart what, choice. what all that's what all that stuff was uh uh but i remember when i did the klingon cd-rom live action game there that we had romulan food out on the table for some big feast there was gawk and all kind of stuff like that there. And uh, uh, that stuff was just smothered in mayonnaise and <laughs> sitting under the hot lights. And I, I never I never ate food on Star Trek all, all, until Commander Dola made a mouse. We'll get to that. <laughs> on, Inter on Enterprise, yeah. Yeah, we're going to come back to that one for sure. Uh, I'm glad you did mention that dinner scene, though, because I'm, I'm always curious about that stuff. But, uh, you know... The interesting thing here about your character is that uh, he does get vaporized. So that means he's not coming back. But uh, and, the, and the visual effects, by the way, scene, I love watching that. Uh, as morbid as it may sound, Scott, I, I do enjoy seeing you get vaporized. But uh, There's a real cool uh, Star Trek card of that. Yeah. <laughs> right in the mid-vaporization. But you can still kind of tell it's me. And I, I, somebody sent me that. Some fan brought that up one day and gave it to me at a convention. And I thought, oh, man, this is nifty. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I have again. I have I have way more cards than I deserve too. <laughs> I'm on a lot of stuff like that where I get them in the mail and people say, "Will you sign this?" And I think, "Oh, I've never seen this before." You know, I didn't realize that. You know, Tosk has a lot of cards and Nivek has a lot of cards. Uh, in the in it, some there's that there's some Star Trek game where it's interactive and you play it with other people where they have ratings of things. And uh, yep. uh, I can't remember the name of it anymore. You're but, probably talking about timelines, I bet. Yeah, I don't know, but uh, but there's a lot of cards from that that I see around, and I have a I have a box of them sitting somewhere that over the years people bring them to me at conventions, and I set them out at conventions, and I'll sign them for collectors or people, you know, that when they come to the cons. But yeah, that was that you know action figures and cards and stuff like that. It's a it's a it's a unique uh, realm an actor well the reason i bring up your character getting vaporized is because that is essentially the end of navek but i heard there was supposed to be more from the character uh can you elaborate on that yeah uh 
I have no idea how much of this stuff is true and how much of it is scuttlebutt, but uh, there was a Star Trek expert, Richard Arnold, who uh, worked for Gene Roddenberry, who used to, I used to see at conventions all the time. He passed away uh, a couple of years ago. Great guy. Uh, really, really a, just a stellar human being. And uh, he told me one time, well, you know the whole story of that, don't you? And I said, no, I, I don't know. I said, I was, I have, I have the script that has the pages where Nivek is alive on the bridge of the enterprise and the Romulan senators who I smuggled over there are with us. And Picard is kind of congratulating us and Marina on the mission. And the last day of shooting, I got new pages and I got killed. And it, I mean, I, you know, I didn't have any aspirations on doing more, but I, it was startling to be killed when the whole week we were filming, Nivek wins. He escapes. They literally, she shoots at me, but they beam me out. So she thinks I'm dead, but I'm alive. And, uh, I was told that there was an entire idea for that season that it was going to be all about the reunification of Romulus and the Vulcans. And uh, Leonard Nimoy was attached to do a series of the episodes that season. During the week that I was filming that episode was when it fell apart. He was supposed to direct Star Trek V. And he had had those smashing successes with the Star Trek and at the same time on the lot at Paramount, Three Men and a Baby was a gigantic hit. So Leonard Nimoy was walking on water on the lot at Paramount Studios as a director. And I heard, and I don't know if this is true or not, that Berman, Rick Berman was talking to him about stuff and said, and Nimoy said, well, send me the script and I'll see what I think of it. And Berman said, why? And Leonard Nimoy said, I have script approval on everything I do. And Berman said, not on this one. And Nimoy said, all right, then I'm not going to do, if I'm not directing, then I'm not doing all of that. There was some kind of cohesive agreement that, all right, I'll do some of these next generation episodes for this storyline that you guys have, but it's mostly in trade for this director. Thing. That's the, that's what I was told. I have no idea if that stuff's true, but something happened that week that killed me as opposed to me being alive. And, uh, and then later on, I don't remember which writer told me, but he said that there were episodes where Spock and Nivek were together working for the reunification. So I would have had scenes with Nimoy. So it's a little bit of a heartbreaker, <laughs> but that's the nature of the game. You know, things out on the out, way on the outside changed. So, so did the storyline. They just polished me off. Yeah, it's unfortunate because the whole, you know, reunification storyline that's even continued now with Star Trek Discovery. So, I mean, it's been many, many decades of getting the storyline together and making it happen. It would have been really cool to see it play out a lot more on TNG. So, uh, you I know, think that was the original plan. It makes sense yeah. to me, just following the canon and the way they were working and the things that I say in that story. Yeah. You know, she she point blanks me. She says, you were a member of Spock's Underground. And I say, yes. And I explained to her what's going on and why I'm doing it all. And uh, 
while we're standing over looking at that senator who's in cryogenic freeze and I'm going to try to smuggle over to the enterprise. And uh, so that was, yeah, that was a, that was unique to be thinking I was alive and then be killed. It was abrupt. And it sometimes is when you're an actor. Yeah. (laughs) All right. So Scott, there's a whole lot of other Star Trek things I want to talk about, but there's one oddity that's on your resume and that is the Star Trek Klingon video game. And I've talked to a few people who did that. I I always enjoy hearing stories about the video game. So uh, I'd love to hear some stories about your time as Quaylon the Klingon. That's, that's a name. (laughs) Yeah. The Klingon live action CD-ROM. It was directed by Jonathan Frakes. Yeah, he directed uh, that game, which is crazy to think about. Also, like you got Jonathan Frakes directing an interactive CD-ROM game. That that's yeah, such a well, ninety were, sentence. They, it was really early in them, though. They they were. This was a maybe. I get. I don't know. Probably a viewed as a big time potential revenue stream for Paramount, and uh, it wasn't. It was. Uh, it was really fun, and uh, for me personally. I was overjoyed because I had always wanted to play a Klingon. Klingons were my favorites. I always, I never understood why I wasn't one with my mug. I always thought, why am I not a Klingon? That's what I should be. You know, a great big thick guy, you know, battle ready, you know, Viking Norwegian background. I mean, you know, all of that, uh, it's a good day to die stuff, you know, <laughs> Nordic and Viking like in their in their creation and in their mantras. And uh, so I always responded well to those guys. And uh, so getting to play one was really fun. And then when I got there and it was Robert O'Reilly, Gowron was there. And then I was Gowron's brother. And uh, that was cool. And there was a lot of really cool people on that one. Um, uh, uh, Rick Worthy. I think that's Rick Worthy's first job in Hollywood. I think Klingon CD-ROM live action game. He was a Klingon and uh, Martha Hackett who played Seska. She's in it. And I had been in that, that play I previously referenced uh, Kentucky cycle. Martha was in the LA version of that. So I knew her from then. So we were palling around in our Klingon garb on the, and the great thing about that one was there's the time constraint isn't anywhere near like when you're shooting the show, you know, time is money when you're shooting those episodes and they want to hurry up. This one was footloose and fancy for you. Everybody was having a lot of fun. Jonathan Frakes is a very, very funny guy and was just having a great time. Uh, and it was a single camera shoot, uh, you know, so it was lots of real kind of close up stuff and direct address right into the lens and things like that. So it was unique in that regard, uh, talking to the player and, uh, but getting to play a Klingon was really cool. Uh, that Klingon opera that I sing in it was, I, I made that up on the spot on the fly. And it's, uh, I just was talking about the Vikings. Well, there's that, Viking theme song, you know, uh, in the, in the movie, the Vikings with Kirk Douglas and Ernest Borgnine, there, there's the, so I sort of took a little bit of that and, oh, my cool, oh, my shawl, whatever it was. So I stole a little bit of, put a little bit of my own 
nuanced Viking thing into that. And uh, anybody want to do it? Well, you know, yeah, I'll sing it, you know. And so because we were just messing around, we were having a great time. Robert O'Reilly is just an incredibly cool, great human being. So he and I were having a lot of fun. And, you know, he was obviously completely at ease and in all that makeup and Klingon garb. Barry Lynch was a Klingon in it. And Barry is in the episode Face of the Enemy. He's the Romulan who defected to Romulus and then came back in Face of the Enemy. So he was in it. Um, so it was a little bit of an old home week. J.G. Hertzler is in it, who played Martok, but he's not Martok in it. He's other older Klingons or something. So there was a lot of us in that one. And over the years, we would see each other and kind of, you know, joke around about it and stuff. But that was a fun one just because it was wall-to-wall Klingons and uh, no pressure. We were just really having a lot of fun. And Jonathan Frakes is a lot of fun. And he, you know, he was flipping everybody a lot of flack and keeping it loose. And, uh, and, and I respond well to that. So I was giving him a lot of flack right back. So we were, we were giving it to each other. And, uh, I remember one day he was talking to Marvin, the cinematographer, and he said, Hey, can we move this doohickey over here so that it lights this a little bit better? You know? And I just said to him, you know, doohickey, is that (laughs) the Penn state school of directing? You know, (laughs) you know, he was, Oh no, you know, nothing but fun. Yeah. We just, it was really, really, really fun. And, uh, the, the, after the fact, I can't remember everybody complained about one aspect of it. There was some part of the game where you couldn't get through or something. So everybody would get there and they would be stumped and it wouldn't work. And there was no solve or something like that. So I think that hurt the popularity of it a little bit, but it may yeah, I happen to be live action, you know, we were we were going to town. We were chewing some scenery as actors and playing Klingons. So that was a great deal of fun. It was a it was a really it was a for Star Trek. It was a pretty easy going job. Yeah, it seems fairly fairly liberating compared to other Star Trek roles. And I've had other folks on the show who've done it, and they've said kind of similar things. I mean, you know, there's still some nerves being directed by Jonathan Frakes. But at the end of the day, it's this wacky Star Trek video game where, like you said, you're, you're, you guys are literally chewing the scenery. I mean, they're, they're Klingons. They might as well start actually chewing the scenery. At one point, you do destroy a bar. Um, so, yeah, it seems like just like a ton of fun to do that game. And, and again, oh, we had we had nothing but fun. And, you know, it, 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 there was just a lot of it's, the, you know, that's the stuff I remember, the in-between moments where we were just goofing and having a great time. Uh, one day I was walking from my trailer to the set. And uh, on the lot at that same time near us filming was the movie Primal Fear with Richard Gere, Ed Norton, and many other great actors. And uh, Richard Gere just popped out of his trailer and had this uh, his assistant with him with the camera and grabbed me and said, sorry, but I just got to do this. <laughs> and threw his arm around me and like pointed and they took the picture. And then ran right back into the trailer. And uh, I've always wished that I could somehow <laughs> get that picture, you know, but it was just crazy. I just thought, Richard Gere, holy cow. And, you know, but he, you know, I was just some random Klingon because they were walking by his trailer all day. There was about 13 of us or something wearing that stuff and walking by. So 
it just happened to be me. It didn't have anything to do with like my performance or any nonsense like that. It was just, I was just this random Klingon and <laughs> he was on the lot at Paramount and he jumped out of the trailer and took a picture. So, uh, you know, I always wished I could have had that shot just for my own personal druthers, you know, just looking through a photo book or whatever and saying, look, this is when Richard Gere grabbed me, you know, so, you know, but yeah, that one was, that was just terrific fun all the way across the board. Be, just the lack of pressure was unique. And, uh, and Frakes, we, he and I just got along really well. We just gave each other a bad time and really <laughs> had a great time. And, and same with Robert O'Reilly, just really, really, really fun to work with. Just, that was, a, that was just a fun job. Uh, and it was, uh, it was, it was quite a few days of work. Uh, I can't remember anymore. I think I used to know, but I don't remember anymore how long it was, but uh, it was a great job. You know, as we wrap up our first part here, talking about different things in your career, I, I do want to do uh, well, at least one thing here, non-trick and start having some fun times here, having some fun stories. There's one really fun little movie on your resume among many, but uh, I want to talk about three ninjas knuckle up because I grew up <laughs> as a fan of the first three ninjas and then the sequel started happening. Uh, and yeah, you're in knuckle up which by the way also has uh, some other Trek alumni in it. Cause you got Charles Napier in it and Patrick Kilpatrick in this yep. film here. That's uh, right. So, and you got Victor Wong, who's not a Trek alumni, but he, he was just awesome. Um, but yeah, I think you were one of the bad guys, right? You were like one of the goons working for, right. what, what are you working for? And, Charles? And, and, and my, and my other, and my other goon partner is Donald Logue. Yeah. Donald Logue. He's, you know, he's become a huge star. So yeah, that was a that was a really unique and fun job too. It was it was really con, really a confusing job because uh, the director's name was Ak Sheen and he's a famous Korean director. So the crew and all of the people were Korean and spoke Korean. And um, there's a great Asian actor, Soon Tech Oh, who's in a lot of stuff over the decades. And he was there the first day we were there and he was our translator and he quit the second day. So we had no translator, no real go-betweens. The one, the producer uh, spoke Korean and English, but he was rarely on the set. He was the executive producer. He wasn't hanging around. So there was a, there was, there was, it was very unique because I hadn't seen the first one. So we didn't really know how campy to be or if they wanted us to be serious. And uh, so it was pretty fun to just try to sort out what they wanted because they would be speaking Korean and sort of exuberantly trying to get some sort of thing for the performance out of you, uh, okay, okay, they'd say, and I think, yeah, okay. Uh, <laughs> you know, I you didn't know what they were telling you that they wanted, and this was the entire shoot for the most part. We got used to it, and they calmed down once we seemed to figure out to overact getting kicked in the head a little bit more. I mean, cause I'm, you know, my guy, uh, I, I get beat up by Tum Tum, an eight year old, the entire movie. Yeah. He just, he, he waxes me like three separate times, but yeah. And working with Charles Napier was really fun. 
and there is a little Star Trek link here. Um, Napier is a real smart Alec, and he's one of those old school, tough guy, Hollywood veteran actors. And uh, uh, he just didn't have any patience at all for this lack of communication. And like they'd come over to direct him and he would just sit there and wait till they were done and then do it however he wanted. He was over it by day three. And uh, <laughs> he he and I hit it off really good. He and I and Donal hung out together a lot. And uh, <laughs> he used to come on. He, he was always a little bit late. Not super late, but always a little bit late. And I was always on time. And I was in my little, Donal and I kind of shared this little honey wagon thing. Uh, it was Donald's first movie and my first movie. So we were just tripping out about, you know, having a halfway decent payday, being a couple of theater guys. And, uh, you know, and Napier would come, he'd park his car and he'd come strolling into the lot really slow. And I'd always wait for him. And as soon as he got an earshot, I'd say, heading back to Eden. Yeah, brother. Every day. And he'd just flip me off, you know, <laughs> and keep walking, you know, because he knew I was referencing his Star Trek episode. Donald, you know, I said to Donald, oh, he's in this kind of famous original Star Trek episode that uh, where he plays a hippie and they're heading for Eden and all of these things. And so uh, anyway, it, there was a little Star Trek connection there that I that I brought to the party, much to the chagrin of Charles Napier, who was a rest his soul. He was a he was a really fun guy to work with and hang out with. And man, talk about stories of Hollywood, just great stories. He told a great one about Shatner and he had done uh, that famous episode. And he, they were on some Western. I don't know what it was. And there was a scene where Shatner had to get off his horse and run up a hill. And uh, with his men, he's some like cavalry captain or something like that. And Napier's there and Napier's up on top of the hill and he knows the directory of the episode really well. And Napier tells the director, yeah, this guy was not 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 super nice to me when I was on his show back in Star Trek days and this and that and the other thing. And so have him do it again. So we run up the hill. Okay. Have him do it again. We'd run up the hill, have him do it again. We run up the hill. And finally Shatner keeps coming up the hill and says, okay, who is it? Who's getting some payback on Bill Shatner? And Napier steps out from behind the scrim that he's behind. And Shatner says, you SOB, you know. <laughs> I just thought, oh, what a great, what a great story. You know, got a little payback on Shatner. I know because Napier had a little bit bigger role on this one than Shatner had. Shatner was guessing in or something, you know. Anyway, that was, I just remembered hearing that story and being sort of thrilled, you know, felt like a fly on the wall or something. Yeah, it's the perfect Shatner revenge story. Yeah, yeah. And there's a few there's a few people out there who want some. I'll never <laughs> say no. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, that was it, that that was my first movie. So uh uh and the interesting thing about that one was I was shooting that movie when I got the movie Fire in the Sky. Hmm. 
And uh, the executive producer was very cool. I went to him and I said, I got a little bit of an overlap here on days. Do you think you could see your way clear to let me out three days early so I could go do this other movie? So I did uh, something like seven weeks on Three Ninjas and then immediately went into seven weeks on the sci-fi thriller Fire in the Sky with uh, James Garner and D.B. Sweeney and... Peter Berg and Henry Thomas and Robert Patrick. Uh, so it was it was pretty thrilling time for me. I was just starting out in Hollywood and caught a couple of really nice flicks back to back, you know. So uh, those were those were some really great early jobs. That's it for this week's episode of Trek Untold. Until next time, don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Trek Untold, all one word. If you'd like to directly support this podcast, please consider becoming a Patreon supporter over on patreon.com slash trekuntold, which gives you access to some great perks that can't be beat. Or pick up some merchandise from our store, or use my Amazon shop link to check out all kinds of different Star Trek merchandise. Links for all these things are in the show notes. Shout out to Triple Fiction Productions for being a key sponsor of Trek Untold. Don't forget to check them out and all of the fine folks whose ads you've seen or heard on this podcast, too. Shout out to Full Empire Promotions for helping connect us with Scott for this interview. Visit FullEmpirePromotions.com to pick up signed items from Scott McDonald from Star Trek and his other movies and shows, as well as autographed items from all of Full Empire Promotions' clients. If you have any questions, feedback, or comments for the show, or would like to suggest a guest or discuss sponsorship options for any of these episodes in the future, send me a message at trekuntold at gmail.com. I hope to see you here again as we uncover more untold stories from Star Trek and beyond, and get to know even more amazing people who have contributed to this ever-expanding universe. Until next time, I'm Matthew Kaplowitz, and remember, fortune favors the bold. Trek Untold is sponsored by treksphere.com. Promoting fan-produced Star Trek content in all forms is powered by the Rageworks Podcasting Network and is affiliated with Nerd News Today.